chapter 1, what I'll do, I'll start and give the introduction to the book itself, and then give anybody an opportunity to comment on the introduction, make anything you want to say. And then we'll start in uh, uh, over with Jack, and we'll read on around and cover uh, a couple of chapters, probably one and pause and discuss it, and then cover the second chapter. And I think the we could no way we'd cover seven chapters in detail in tonight's study, but I think we can get those first two covered in detail and then skim the other, you know, as to the pertinent points, uh, at least that other uh, uh, three through seven at that point. <coughs> but um, Acts, first of all, that uh, as with all of the books of the New Testament, although we call it Acts, it really doesn't have a name that it's written. And uh, it was initially referred to as Acts of the Apostles, some referred to as Acts of the Holy Spirit, and then it just simply got shortened to Acts over a period of time. And we come along and stick the name on it. We learn right at the very first that uh, it's written by the same author as Luke. Uh, in verse 1, in my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so let me go back over and we can read Luke and see that he also addresses it to most excellent Theophilus. Uh, by him using that term, most excellent Theophilus, the indication is that uh, Theophilus was a, was a Greek name and he was a very prominent individual. And so he's a very prominent person that has been converted. And so Luke has written the what we refer to as the Gospel of Luke to allow him to know with certainty many of the things that he had heard about. And so Luke wrote as a historian that had interviewed other eyewitnesses, had investigated material, uh, read the various materials that were circulating and all, and then sat down and wrote that. And now he takes up here, and some of this material we have in Acts, Luke is an eyewitness and a participant of. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul. Some of it he's writing from the account of eyewitnesses and putting it together in the same way that he did Luke. Uh, Luke and Acts are, if you're ever going to sit down and study with uh, uh, somebody who is uh, not yet a Christian, they make a very good book pair to start with. In fact, in the antiquity, in the manuscripts, Luke and Acts are actually together. You know, all the times we find them, they're, they're together. The reason they're good, there's several unique features. Uh, Luke is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, and he's a very well-educated person. He writes with the highest vocabulary of anybody except for the Apostle Paul himself, who was also very well-educated. Uh, for example, uh, the Gospel of Luke is about 350 or so words richer than Mark in his writing. He writes bigger sentences, bigger vocabulary, and all. He's been very tested. Uh, in the last, the man that is referred to as the father of New Testament archaeology is by the name of William Ramsey. And Ramsey went to school uh, in Europe in the last century and was educated with we, what we now refer to as the Tubigen theory. And the Tubigen theory was that the Gospels was not written by eyewitnesses at the time that it happened, but rather that it was put together about a century afterwards, and those stories just simply became bigger, and as far as the miracles and things like that, that was a theory 
that came out of the age of rationalization in this country and, and was going big in Europe. Well, William, William Ramsey went to the school and was educated in that, and then he left it and had set his lifetime ambition to be an archaeologist, and specifically to study the New Testament. Well, in his book, a very strange thing happened, very interesting to us, that our believers know. He makes a mention at the first that he actually entered into his uh, archaeological field of studying the New Testament prejudiced against the New Testament. And the two books he used in examining that part of the country was Luke and Acts. By the time he had finished years of studying and visiting all the cities that you read about in Luke and Acts, investigating the language and the customs, investigating the materials and the sources and everything like that, checking down the historical events with other uh, historians that wrote at that particular time, his conclusion was that Luke was the most accurate historian of anybody he'd ever studied after. In other words, he simply made the statement he never found a blemish, uh, which is, by the way, something you don't say about any secular historian. When we think of Herodotus, of Thucydides, and people like that, they're very good historians, but they're not perfect. They're, they're human like you and I, and sometimes they operate on information that is not so. They inject their own biases in their writings, just like when we read the newspaper, magazines, and watch the news on TV. We know that the biases of those people are there, and that sometimes the information is not accurate. Well, all secular history is that way, that you just can't read something and say what well, says it, and it's so. You have to go to other sources and check it out, and and get verification because the biases are there. Uh, our historians have biases, the Russian historians have biases. But here's a very unique feature that comes out that sets this, and it's a characteristic of all books in the Bible, and it really stood out with William Ramsey on Luke and Acts. And that is, he said he made a statement that he would not make with any other historical work. He just simply did not find a blemish. That every single town or city that you read about in this book, the book of Acts, that town did exist, and it existed in exactly the same location where Luke placed it. Any way that this book touches on customs or the cultural uniqueness of the people, it always does so in a way that when he checked it out, it was very accurate. The way they refer to their coins, all of the uh, authorities that you read about, like Agrippa, Felix, Festus, and the others throughout here, all of them he traced, and, and not only did he find them living and reigning at exactly the same time where Luke puts them, but they also did, they were that type of person, that type of character and all this, as Luke attributes to them. Uh, for example, when you get into the marriage of Agrippa in uh, the book of Acts, well, all of this bears out with the secular sources. So, you're actually reading in a book that you can sit down and say that here is an archaeologist who started out in his examination of the material as actually biased against the material and came to the conclusion that Luke was the most accurate historian that he'd ever traced and, and, and worked after and that he was willing to make a statement about Luke that he wouldn't make about anybody else. And I think there's just simply is no blemish there. And of course, when you and I look at the marks of inspiration that lie on the Bible, one of the marks is the uniqueness of the book that it does not contain 
the various biases of the author, that it does not contain blemishes, it, it reveals the truth. Uh, if David commits adultery, even though he's king of Israel, it's just there. If, if Peter denies the Lord, even though he's one of his chosen apostles, and he's going to write a couple of books, uh, it's there. Uh, nothing is whitewashed, nothing is covered up, and in every way we can check it out, it bears the test. All right, now, as we read the events that unfold here, you and I are not there. We didn't see them, and, but we can study them, and, and there is a criteria with which you can investigate history just like anything else. And the first thing to always keep in mind, and this is what Ramsey points out in his uh, investigation, and now it's, it's an absolute proven fact, the acid test of any historical work is that it's written at the time that the people are alive, that were involved in it, and published, and they have opportunity to refute it. That's the acid test of any historical work. That's the difference between history and tradition, that it's published while the people are alive who were involved in it, and they thereby have the opportunity to refute it. And to show you how that works, all you have to do is pick up any magazine, like I take a number of magazines, one on U.S. News and World Report. The first thing I always read in the magazine is the letters to the editor, where people are responding to last week's or last month's issue, and if there's anything in there that somebody spots a flaw in or differs with, I guarantee you they're going to write to the editor and say, hey, you've got your facts wrong here. And that's what that page is for, to allow people to, to sound off. And the same thing with the newspaper. So you can rest in confidence that you're reading a book that, that all, A-L-L, all historical scholarship will acknowledge was written before 70 A.D. Written and published and circulated, written somewhere in the 60s, somewhere in the 60s. Written, published, and circulated at a time when people, many, many, many of the peoples are still alive that are involved in these, these events. And not only that, the, some of the events that we read, even though you cannot see the event with your own eyes, the impact of it can be checked out with historical sources. For example, when we read in the, tonight about the establishment of the church and 3,000 people converted on Pentecost, you and I read about that miraculous outpouring and the tongues and the things of that nature and we're not there but there's something there's a historical fact that, that is there and can be checked out outside the acts itself the church definitely was established in jerusalem at this time it definitely had thousands of converts immediately and the question becomes how in the city of jerusalem the holy city of israel do you go in and convert several thousands of people in one day, many thousands, over a few weeks, if you're not operating something pretty powerful? I mean, you just think today of going into Harlem or Watts or, or any part of New York City or any other city, and in just a short period of time, you've converted thousands of people. For every effect, there's a cause. And so when you read this, you can say it's, it's a historical fact. I wasn't there. I didn't see these events. But it's a historical fact that can be verified and checked out that thousands of Jews were converted in a very short time. And the church had its birth right in the holy city of the Jews. All right? As it spreads out, you can say the same thing as they go into Athens and to Thessalonica and to all these other cities. 
you can actually go, it is a historical fact that the apostles went into those places and they converted thousands of people. And, and again, the question has to be answered, how did they do it? You know, how did that kind of phenomenon happen in such a, a short period of time? Also, that when you read these miracles that are recorded, you can know, can you imagine yourself living in Jerusalem, or living in Corinth, or living in Rome, or living in Athens. And here is this book being circulated that says all kinds of miracles took place. You know, the lame were raised, the blind given their sight, dead raised, etc., you know. And here you are living in that place, and you're thinking, you're saying that that is nonsense, it's not so. Can you imagine a book being allowed to be published and circulated? and not challenged. And the interesting thing is with this book as it was published, and this is something that a lot of people that are not believers don't realize, the, the study of the records of that time simply do not give us any statements of rejection that these fantastic things happen. What they do give us is some explanation for them that would be contrary to what's in here. For example, when we read among the uh, Jewish writings, like in the Gemara, they say that Jesus deceived the people through sorcery. But what they're really saying, well, in the New Testament it says the Jews, many of them, attributed his work to the powers of the devil. So, but what they're, here's the enemies that are saying, hey, he did something that the people thought was miraculous. Well, in the same way, when we read of other sources outside the Bible and they comment on this, such as the Jewish sources. They acknowledge that they were converting people because they were doing these things that the people perceived to be miraculous. Notice they don't agree that they're miraculous, but they at least are acknowledging that these things happened in such a way that those people perceive. Well, then you say, well, maybe they was deceived. But here's an interesting thing. These people that that are by the thousands converted, change their entire lifestyle. They're converted in a short period of time, they change their entire lifestyle, and not only that, but by the thousands, they're willing to go out and turn and give their life to what they believe. You're not dealing with something like Simon the Sorcerer. The magicians don't go out and die for what they believe. You know, they, they deceive people as long as they can and then they run. And, but you're dealing with people here that not only are preaching this and saying it, but they're willing to stand up and look anybody in the face, debate anybody, go before officials, and willing to actually die for what they believe. And you've got thousands of people that's being converted. Not only that, but we can look at the type of people being converted. These are not just a bunch of superstitious people that are willing to believe anything. Uh, for example, Theopolis, that this is addressed to, he's a pretty prominent individual in that day. Uh, Agrippa uh, was very, he found the arguments of Paul very persuasive in, in his high position. The Apostle Paul was probably one of the most educated, intelligent people of his day and became obviously a Christian. He made a 180 degree about face. And the church had some very prominent people in it. Uh, for example, uh, Philemon was a wealthy man. He had a church that met in his house and Paul uh, talked about the church that met at his house and told him to prepare a lodging for Paul when he came and Paul had converted one of his servants, Onesimus, in jail. So uh, there were very prominent, well-to-do people like Philemon that were converted and all. 
So all types of people were converted with all educational background. Jews, Greek, Latin-speaking people, and they changed their entire way of life. For, and again, the argument here is that for every effect, there's a cause. And there's just simply no, nobody's ever come up with a cause adequate, separate apart from the information we have right here. Okay, let's go ahead and start our study. Jack, if you want to start there at verse 1, and uh, start, and let's see how many we've got... Uh, Let's uh, read about five, six verses at a good breaking point. Let's go on around and, until we complete that chapter. In the first account, I composed the office about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive, after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said was heard of, heard of from me. You heard of from me. John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many that days from now. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Philodes, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brother. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. 
Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Academa, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Mathis. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belonged. Then they cast lots, and they and the lot fell to Mathis. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Okay. Uh, back to the uh, first there. Uh, I think the first thing you see very easily is that the apostles were a very special type people in the very first. In other words, there was a difference between the apostles and uh, the others. In fact, we look at the word apostles, but really it's, it's a Greek word, apostolos, and if they had translated that word like they should have, it simply would have been the ones sent out. But they were the ones sent out by the Lord. Uh, later on we read about Barnabas being an apostle. Well, people argue about that. Well, I thought there was just 12 plus Paul and all. But it's because of our use of the word. To them, that's just simply a word that means the one sent out. And the key to these is that they were the ones sent out by Christ. You could also be an apostle from a particular church. You could be an apostle from a big business organization. You could be an apostle for a governor. It's just anybody that sent somebody out to do a specific job was referred to as one sent out. And that's saying we just come along and transliterate that word into our language. And I think... Uh, to me, at least, the verse 3 here is very important all through there. He says, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing, or the King James says, many infallible proofs that he was alive and appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Uh, these people did not come to believe in Jesus because of some nebulous experience or because somebody just said, let Jesus come into your heart or anything like that. But they were convinced beyond any shadow of doubt based on evidence. Remember Thomas and his attitude. He says, I won't believe except I put my hand and touch those places. No. And then we see where he actually was with them for a period of 40 days and conversed with them about the kingdom of God that they were to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And God wanted them to know positively without any doubt in their mind that, he, that they hadn't seen some spirit if he had only appeared to them one time, years later they might question, you know, did, did it really happen? But he was there 40 days, and he taught them, and they experienced him in every way that they could experience another human being. Now I'll tell you why this becomes, this kind of statement becomes so important. When you read the works of unbelievers who reject the resurrection of Christ, none of them will attack the sincerity of the apostles. They all will acknowledge that they were very sincere people that believed what they said was right. Now, the reason they'll acknowledge that is because they went to their death for it. 
That don't prove they're right, but it proves they believe very strongly they're right. Well, then how do they get out of accepting the apostles' testimony, all 13 of them then? Well, they get out of it by saying they were deceived. And they wanted him to rise from the dead so strong, and, they, and it was a sort of a visionary experience and things of this nature. But the problem is they acknowledge the honesty of the apostles, and they acknowledge the fact that they honestly believed it. Well, what is said here is so concrete that the apostles could not be deceived. They were either liars or they were telling the truth. Because they said that they they experienced him in every way you could experience another human being. They was with him for a period of 40 days here that it was literally infallible proofs that they had all of this demonstrated before them. And the same thing will be, other strong statements will be made. Uh, John later on will say, things which our eyes seen and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And Peter will drive on the point that we did not declare fables or, or anything of that nature to you, you know, that he, he'll drive home that point. All right, now, the, the point then, the argument is, from the believer's standpoint, is that, that you don't, uh, these people literally are going to their death for what they believe. People don't go to their death for something they believe is a lie. In other words, it just doesn't, it just, it, it, you, you would have them in the position of knowing that something is a lie and literally going to their death one to one. And not only that, they were suffering all kinds of persecution and everything along the way. In short, by the time we finish looking at this and reading the actual information and checking it out with all the tools that we have and all, you can wind up building a case for the resurrection of Jesus that is actually stronger than the case that you can build for any event that's ever happened in history. And that's why that uh, Irvin Linton, in his book, A Lawyer Examines the Bible, on page 50, makes the statement of all the events that have ever happened in history. None is so verified by quality evidence as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, this will be developed more when we get into the second chapter, but I think the reason it's important for us to dwell on is that there are so many people out there that are not Christian that think on Christianity as a very negative thing that it that is strictly an emotional type thing, and that uh, that it's it, it requires faith, and sure it requires faith in the sense that anything you've never seen with your own eyes requires faith. But 99.9 percent .9 of everything you believe, you believe on faith. You never saw it with your own eyes. God has given us the intellectual ability to evaluate information, and that's why we sit on juries and determine whether a guy is going to jail or or going to be electrocuted or set free. We believe we've got that kind of ability to evaluate evidence. And so, that these people can believe that strong, and you and I can know, and I think we need to develop the ability to teach others like these people were taught. Uh, that, that is the resurrection of Jesus based on concrete historical facts that, that, they, that they can examine. And then, notice what he said here in verse 8, he tells them that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all. Now, sometimes I think we misuse that. And a lot of Christians today will refer to themselves as witnesses. Now, I'm not a witness. The apostles were. And they went out as witnesses who had touched him and talked with him, ate with him, and spent 40 days after his uh, resurrection from the dead. And they were literal eyewitnesses. And then, but as they gave their eyewitness account, we're going to see the Holy Spirit will work with them and perform miracles to confirm that eyewitness account. 
And so the people are going to, that's going to be what causes the people to listen very carefully to what's being said. I mean, after all, if you tell me you've seen a man raised from the dead, that's one thing. But you tell me you have seen a man raised from the dead and you've touched him and you've talked with him and then you turn around and heal somebody and give sight to the blind, now that's something else. That was where the Holy Spirit would bear witness with their testimony as they, as they gave it concerning the event itself. But the point is that they will come to believe beyond any doubt. And these people were witnesses. You and I have what we have as a result of these witnesses. Uh, run around now. Anybody else make any comment that you want to on the uh, material that you've read there in that first chapter? <laughs> Well, you know, you talked about uh, uh, that, you know, that we're not witnesses. Well, no, we're not eyewitnesses. But yet, we can definitely be a witness of the resurrection through our life because the resurrection life that's within us. You can. A living testimony. Yeah, in a living. But I'm saying that in the sense that it's used here, I agree with you in the yeah. sense that they use it, but I'm saying that in a sense that it's used here, that the apostles were very special people, that, that other people hadn't had that experience of, of being an eyewitness and experiencing for 40 days and all, and that they, they he was speaking specifically to the apostles when he said, you're going to be my witness in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, that, that they were literally, he was talking there about what they'd seen their eyes. I agree with what you're saying in another, in another use of the word in that sense. Well, in the same sense, though, we can be witnesses as to what God has done in our own lives. What He's done in your life, you right? Uh, right? I sure. can't be a witness to what God's done in your life, right. but I can to what He's sure. done in mine. You know, it's the same sense as the disciples being the witness here. Uh, no, not with our eyes. We haven't seen Him, but we have experienced Him. Yeah, I agree so, in your witness, like on the life, from the standpoint that. Uh, uh, a simple statement, train of a child and the way it should go, when he gets old he'll not depart from it. Anybody that has had experience of, of training children up based on these principles and seen the fruit of it is a, is, has first-hand experience witness that that is a truth. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe as we grow and mature and develop and even get older, we become a witness of even more mm -hmm. of the truth because we see that. And then if you, to the degree that we emulate Jesus in our life, you can become, if I understand what you're saying, a witness to the fact that it honestly works, that okay. you can be changed. Your personality, your character, and, and everything can be changed. Right. That right. we can be witnesses in that sense. Right. Right. And this is, is something that Charlie and I have seen uh, an error in the church, is the fact that they're always saying, talking a witness, rather than being the witness. You know, they say, you know, they, they tell about Jesus, they tell things. But their, their lives aren't changed, you know, or at least they don't allow them to show the truth, you know. Yeah, and I, this is, yeah, I think this is, this is where we see the, the, be, the being a witness, you know, yeah. is so important. Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, I say the, the biggest force against Christianity is not the infidels or the atheists or the unbelievers, but it's the people that profess Christianity and simply don't live it. Uh -huh. that because it, those that have not read the Bible, in fact, we've got a song that I guess we're all familiar with, that you know, Christians are the only Bible the world reads It's not Christian. And that, uh, that uh, if we're talking about something that we say is so great 
and yet obviously we don't adhere to it, that it's hard for them to believe. If I'm trying to convince you the, that a Ford is, a, is the best car on the road, and I run out here and buy a Chevrolet, that you're going to have a hard time believing that. Or vice versa. Uh, that's like the man has said that coin it. What you do speak so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. That's a really good point, huh? Mm -hmm. uh, 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 this is this is pretty much the way it is. That uh, why the church has been as ineffective as it is. If everyone that names the name of Christ were walking in a Christian way, living a Christian life, uh, hey, those twelve or the 120, however many there were, turned the world upside down. And just the amount of Christians that we have in this room, that we truly live that resurrection life, and have that resurrection life showed through and up, we turn the whole, whole United States upside down and the world too. Yeah, yeah I think that... Uh what happened that, of course, well, I think one thing that will come out as far as the way they turn the world upside down, it's not a matter of just living and the proclaiming of the evidence, but there was tremendous sacrifice that was made. Now, I mean, they traveled and they expended themselves and they worked and there was tremendous sacrifice that was made in it. It just didn't happen. Right? Oh, yeah. like that. It was, it was tremendous sacrifice well, I, that was made. I think it works the other way, too, and I think we've seen it in our society where atheists are making a tremendous difference in our laws and, and everything mm -hmm. and, and there was just a few of them and they really band together and they worked hard and they've really grown and they're getting things done yeah it's amazing to me that uh that in our society according to gallup polls and other polls atheists make up five percent of the population and yet i know the school textbooks are dominated by the thinking of unbelievers and uh, the same with so many of the laws uh, the FCC just passed a law the other day that uh, or unless it's challenged in the court so far I've heard everybody challenging but that the TV stations between 12 night and 6 in the morning can show any kind of filth they want to show on the major networks I mean right. ranked pornography and they they said they've got the right to do it uh, Larry Flint is arguing before the Supreme Court right now, and I'm curious to see how it comes out, that he had the right to make the kind of comment he did about Jerry Falwell. You know, the, the, drew a cartoon up. Uh, you familiar with Jerry Falwell? Yeah. Okay. Said that he, his first sexual experience was, was an incestuous one with his mother in an outhouse, and he was drunk most of the time when he got in the pulpit. And he published that all over the place. Well, it's up to the Supreme Court now. But they're literally, and he's been back, arguing that, that he has that kind of right, that, that, that free speech entails it. I think. But again, I think along the line of what you said, you've got the example of a few people that have been very aggressive, and we've got a lot of lazy Christians. Uh -huh. And the end result has been that kind of thing. Uh, in Russia, we think of it as a communist car country, but in Russia, the Communist Party, it's even hard to believe, represents only 7% of the population of the country. And that 7% totally controls the other 93%. Just absolutely and totally controls them. And in Germany, in World War II, the Nazis represented, a, again, a small percentage of the German people, and yet they totally dominated and controlled that people. But uh, zeal 
can accomplish a whole lot. And I think one of the things we can see through here that God worked through them, but God does not. They have free will. They had to make the choice to really sacrifice, and they made that choice. Mm -hmm. And I think just like when we gather in studies like this, and as we go through here and we learn more material and everything, I think we have to always keep in mind that the bottom line of information is to motivate you to do something. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to gather and, and, and study and, and we're just uh, accumulating information from a curiosity standpoint, that doesn't do God a lot of good. It's like James says, the man that hears and doesn't do, you know, or anything like that. But if we can read and learn this information and, and, and develop the ability to articulate it and everything, and then we're willing to get out and forcibly, uh, you know, present that information and try to reach as many people as we can, then, then it, that's the purpose behind it all. Uh, let's see, that was uh, one, oh, one thing, too, I think, is uh, uh, since we're dealing somewhat in the realm of evidence, that, uh, that I think a point I'd like to make, because sometimes it's, it's misused when we use the thing of prophecy. The, there are different types of prophecy in the Old Testament. There are those things that are direct statements of events that are going to come about in the future and they're perfectly fulfilled and you actually have a miracle in words. And a lot of this we see in Jesus. But also, there are many statements in the Old Testament that were not necessarily talking about something in the future, but it was a statement of truth relative to a principle of that time. And if that principle happened again and this was applicable, the writer will say, uh, this it was written, or this fulfilled, such and such. But in reality, now some, I point that out because sometimes Christians have studied with unbelievers that say, hey, here's a prophecy that's fulfilled. I'm going to look at one in just a minute here. And the person goes back and checks out the Old Testament, reads the context, and says, hey, that prophet spoke that primarily to those people in that day. He's not thinking about anything in the future. And that's right. And that a number of times, and, and they would take truths and if the same truth was applicable here, they'd say, it's just like Isaiah said, or it's just like Jeremiah said. But in reality, he was saying it to the people of his day. And so I think that we have to keep that distinction in mind when we study with somebody that's an unbeliever and we're using prophecy as one of the evidences. All right, here, in verse 20, where they're looking for a replacement for Judas. And Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms. Okay? And, and it is written there. May his place be deserted, but there be no one to dwell in it. And then he comes up now, may another take his place of leadership. Okay, there's no question that that's there. We can go back and read that last statement in Psalms 109. But when you read the context of the whole psalm, David was a man that, and other leaders and all, who were betrayed by their own familiar friend. If you read, of course, David several times was betrayed by his own friends. And there were consequences there. There was deep feelings on David's part when somebody that dipped their bread with him after he lifted up their foot against him and everything like that. David, in some ways, was a type of Christ in the Old Testament. And what we find happening there, in other words, I'm saying that David was betrayed, and David, when he writes, is speaking of experiences out of his own life. But then here, it's applicable in this situation. And so Peter is aware of the fact that when David was betrayed by one of his key people and, and the position then was vacant, that he pushed it aside and went right ahead and filled that position again. And so that's Peter's only point, that this is what happened back there. 
let's go ahead and do that, and that's the ram in which they'll do it. Now, to me, something happens here with David and Christ that becomes a, a thing that deals with a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament of Messiah. And that is that there are so many things in the life of people like David and Joseph that so much parallel things in the life of, of Jesus. I mean, like the soul and the bondage and all, all of this nature, David being betrayed and uh, the time that even when he was trying to do good, Saul still jealous of him and everything like that. But what we see here is a principle that not, was fulfilled then, it fulfilled in Christ, and it will be fulfilled, I think, in the same sense in other individuals all through the centuries. And Paul said, all that live God in Christ Jesus to suffer persecution. The truth is that if you take it upon yourself to respect God's law, and you're going to uphold righteousness and truth and, and fairness and justice, and you're going to condemn sin, you're going to turn some people off, and you're going to incur some wrath. And it's going to be times when you step on toes. And it's going to be times when, when your best friend that you thought was with you, when the going gets rough, and he finds out he's going to get his toes stepped on, or he's going to get hurt in some way, that he's going to step by, and you're out there by yourself. That happened to David, and it happened to Moses, and it happened to others. So obviously, they experienced, to the degree of their righteousness, much suffering. That's what Jesus said when all the prophets were suffering. So they made perfect examples for the Holy Spirit to use when they could write out of their anguish. And the Holy Spirit would use that as prophetic utterances of things that would apply to the Messiah to come. Because as the perfect righteous man, it didn't surprise God when they killed Jesus. They'd always kill righteous people. From Abel all the way through, there never was a righteous man that wasn't persecuted. It just never was. And so God knew what they would do to his perfect son when he got here. And so that all of these events, though, as they happened to them, made perfect situations for the Holy Spirit to use these people in pointing the way to a Messiah to come who was going to suffer and die for all mankind, and he would be this one righteous man that God, in pure righteousness, that God would use as a sacrifice for others. But again, I think it, it involves, because I know that, see, I initially approached the Bible from a standpoint of skepticism. And... Uh, I can remember listening to preachers preach sermons and they would show that this particular prophecy is fulfilled in such and such, you know. And I'd go back and read the context on that. And I think the prophet is speaking out of his own heart in his own situation, you know. And, and it was like, well, to my mind, you don't have any evidence here that's applicable in that sense. Well, see, there are those things that are 100% applicable to Christ that spoke and they didn't even fully understand. But then there are those things that come as a result that we that the Hebrew writer will refer to them as types and shadows and all that came out of the experiences of those people and the Holy Spirit used them and they wrote and they would meet their fulfillment later on. Yeah, I don't believe that it. Most of the prophets didn't realize that their words would be used in the times of, of Christ or in the times of today even. I agree with you. You know, but but they are. The Holy Spirit uses them, just like you said, yeah. because they are applicable now. Right. You know. I think one of the great, and when we get into later on, putting into the whole book together from a standpoint of evidences, this great miracle of the Bible is the fact that these men wrote, like uh, uh, Janet mentioned there, uh, 
out of her experiences many times, the writing to people of her day, not understanding so many things, and yet all of their words would flow together from Moses and Samuel and everyone and paint a perfect picture of the Messiah and they would just all come together. That's and why you never had all of it at one place. You always had If we use it the right way, it can become something that's very meaningful when we use it with somebody that is not yet a believer and hasn't studied that deep. And I think those are the type things that we often, I've heard people say that just anybody can pick up the Bible and just read it through they're going to understand it all again. I don't buy that. Uh, that. If that's the case, then the apostles should have just went out and, and, and wrote this down and threw it out. That, that P Timothy was told to study, these people studied, and God has always used Mo Moses or whoever that was well studied, and they teach, and people study and learn, and then they teach. And, and you're going to go through here, and we're not going to find anybody that becomes a Christian because he just on his own reached out and picked up the writing and, and became. But there was always a, a somebody that was that was being guided, whether it's the eunuch sitting there reading Isaiah and, and, and saying, well, who's this man speaking of? Until Philip come and, and explain the thing to him. And I think in the same way we see the essential there for people you know, like us and other Christians. Uh, I didn't just pick up the Bible and become a Christian. There were other Christians that studied with me and invested a lot of time and got me to study the Bible. And then there were other people that I read from and got the meaning of words and learned about history and things like that. So all of us, and in the same way that we've benefited, then we need to think about these people out here, I think, that are not Christian, that it's not fair to expect them just to go go, go to the coffee table, pick up the Bible, become a Christian. They need and have the right, God has the right to expect us to go to them and to take the message to them. Okay, let's get into that second chapter. They picked Matthias to replace him. Uh, where did we finish reading last time? Okay. When the day Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that they, each of us, then how is it that each of us hear, these, hear them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Algeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya and your Visitors from Rome, both Jews and, Rome, and converts to Judaism, Grecians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they they ask one another, "What does this mean?" Some, however, made fun of them and said, "They have had too much wine." Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd: "Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning." 
No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last day, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will, I will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs on all the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says again, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, and that I, I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoice. Moreover, my flesh also would abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow the Holy One to undergo the death. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the Father of the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear, for David, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. 
and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and wondered, and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, let's go back and several things here. First of all, uh, Pentecost, Greek word that the penta of the root meaning of five is 50 days after the Passover. And from a provident standpoint, we can see how God has set this up, that there was three times a year under the law of Moses when all the devout Jews were to come back to Jerusalem, no matter where they were, anywhere scattered, and this time they were scattered all over the Roman world. But three times a year, two of those times was the Passover and Pentecost. So that meant when Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, there weren't just the Jews there that normally lived there, but there were devout Jews from all over the Roman world that had come back home. And then when he was raised from the dead and when the church had its birth on Pentecost, again, you've got devout Jews, like we read there, from all of these nations that come. What the, God has done by having this, these Jews, and he's providentially prepared this in, in the law of Moses, that means that these people that are converted are not just from Jerusalem. They're from all over the Roman world. And so what's going to happen, within a short period of time, these people are going to go back home. And every place they go, they're going to, they didn't, they didn't have cars and airplanes and buses, etc. They walked, so it was a long journey. And they stayed at people's homes, and they stayed along the way. And all the way back home, they're preaching the good news. And when they get back home, they're going to set up churches. So as a result of this command of God and the law of Moses for all devout Jews to come back to Jerusalem to worship during the Passover Pentecost. And then it isn't interesting from a providential standpoint that it's the very time Jesus was crucified and the very birth of the church on those two days. Because had it happened at any other time other than Passover and Pentecost, you could not have established the church in one generation. That's how God did it. He, wanted, he providentially set it up with that commandment. And he had always, he had providentially scattered the Jews throughout the Roman world. They all come home. They all go back home in a process. He has thousands upon thousands of people. And we're going to get over here in another chapter. Two more thousand converted. He's going to wind up with thousands of people going out as missionaries all over the Roman world. And they're going to go back home and set up churches. And so it makes it possible that in one generation, he literally preached the gospel to the civilized world in, in that day. But again, I think something to note here, that our job is just like these people, when they went out and were just simply preaching the word, I don't know how many of them thought very seriously that they were part of a providential act of God and that God had providentially set this up to get the gospel out in one generation. Because it would sound like an impossible task. It would sound like an impossible task, and yet God is taking care of that. Well, I think that the, the message to me, anyway, on, on something like that, 
It's like he's told us to go preach the gospel to the entire creation. And he said, go make disciples of all the nations. Well, you and I can sit here in this little bitty room in Grundy County and think, well, man, that's an impossible task. And we think of others out there. But if we think of the fact that God is in control and God is working in the realm of providence, and you and I can only speculate and guess as to all the things that God is doing to prepare the road itself, then all we have to do is do our part and know that it's going to be accomplished just like he says. <coughs> she got a, I don't know if he had a cold or got choked on something. He's had a cold. Oh, okay. I was, I was hoping he wouldn't choke on something. Okay, now, notice as it starts here on Pentecost, notice as it starts on Pentecost, that because there's a lot to talk about Pentecost and all today, but I want to notice some very unique things. This wasn't just some average church service now. There was a blowing of a violent wind from heaven, and it filled the house, okay? So there's this tremendous rushing wind that attracts the attention of everybody. God's done that. Number two, it says in verse three, that they saw tongues of fire separated and came and rest upon each other. So here are the apostles, and you've got tongues of fire standing over each other. Okay? Uh, the reason now on that down is a lot of people today will talk about the Pentecost experience in that same sense. And I don't know anybody's going to claim that that they can have a situation where tongues of fire come and stood over everybody and the thousands of people were called together here at one time. And so God has got them an audience real quick. Now notice something else then as they come on down and they begin to speak. Here you've got these people, it says, from every nation under heaven. And look at verse 6. When they heard the sound, the crowd came toward together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And in verse 8 it says, how is it that each of us hears them in our own language? In other words, they weren't just speaking something that somebody else didn't understand. That they, this gift they had was such that they were speaking and everybody was listening to them and hearing it in their own language. In other words, the, the gift was an essential one. God had given the apostles the command to preach the gospel to the entire world. And they were going to the entire world. And God wasn't taking time to send them to a language school. The, the, the gift was going to allow them to go out and to preach and everybody would hear the gospel in their own language. In fact, uh, when Paul talks about that gift of tongues and all, he run in 1 Corinthians 14. Come on, turn over there real quick. Hold your place here. In 1 Corinthians 14 and uh, verse uh, 22, he said, Tongues are for a sign not to believers, but for unbelievers. And then he mentions prophecies for, for our believers. But the point is that when we look here, we can see here are all these Jews that had a part in crucifying Jesus, a lot of them. They were definitely unbelievers so far as Jesus being the Messiah. And when these people started to, they, they were just unlearned Galileans, started to speak to them in their own language, that was a sign to them. That, that it just caught their attention. And first, apparently, there was some out in a distance there that here you've got the 12 apostles preaching, and, and then they just at first had made the statement that, hey, they just, these people are drunk or something. And then Peter corrects them very quickly. He says, just, just 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, nobody, nobody here is drunk. We're just as sober as we can be. 
and everybody's standing there amazed that they're hearing it in their own language. So what we've had then is three events that take place by the power of God. And that is one, that God has planned that wind that was loud enough to shake the whole place up and get everybody's attention. And then there were the tongues of fire that stood over the apostles. And then when they began to speak, they had the ability to speak and communicate in all their languages. Everybody heard them speaking in their own language and all that's involved. Then, notice what happens now. He got, he's got their attention. So now he quotes from Joel. And here we have a prophecy that Joel uttered concerning something that was going to happen in the future. Now, when it says the last days, verse 17, this really is the first days of the church. But it's the last days of Judaism. And when Joel uttered that, he uttered it as a Jew living hundreds of years back. And he was looking forward to the last days of Judaism when the old covenant would come to an end and the new covenant would be ushered in. So he said, in these last days, God will pour out. And basically, he gives, without going into detail, is two things going to happen here. One good and one bad. The good was the Spirit was going to be poured out and God's blessing. The bad was that there was a judgment situation. And so everybody's going to experience one or the other. There was the blessing that came as a result of the Spirit. Then there was the judgment situation, and he said that's coming about in the last days. Well, we don't have all the fulfillment of that next passage. We have the first part of it, and that's the pouring out of the Spirit. And so Joel now has forecast something, and so now they really think about this. Because you see, they have studied that just like you and I study the Bible. And Joel did say that in the last days God would pour out his Spirit. And then there's this great judgment situation. And so man, Peter has really got their attention. They're all eyes and ears. Now, put yourself in the position of those people and the wind and the, the tongues of fire and speaking in your language, and now all of a sudden they call your attention to a prophecy that you've read for years but never fully understood. And now that you can say, hey, you know, God's Spirit is poured out. We're in the, we're in the last, last days of, the, of this situation. Okay, then he goes ahead and begins his sermon in, in verse 22, talks about Jesus accredited by God by miracles and wonders and signs. Now, here's the interesting thing. They don't deny that he did those miracles and wonders, yet they killed him. But keep in mind, they had no problem accepting Jesus as a prophet. And the prophets had performed miracles and more signs. They killed Jesus for one reason, and that is he claimed to be the Son of God, and that was blasphemy. And so, God's already acclaimed him with signs and miracles and all, but you killed him. Well, now what he's going to do in this sermon is nail down the fact that Jesus was more than a prophet. Jesus was literally the Son of God. And that's what these people needed to prove to them. They'd already seen the miracles. And they were willing to accept him as a prophet. But man, that was blasphemous when he claimed to be literally God incarnate or the Son of God. All right, notice again, we see something about the providence of God here. He said, you did this. This man, verse 23, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death. But God raised him from the dead. All right, we see how the providence of God and the foreknowledge works. God didn't cause those people to crucify Jesus. They did it of their own free will. But God looked down the stream of time. He looks at the future just as vividly as you and I look at the present. And he saw that when his righteous son came and lived and condemned the hypocrites of that days and condemned the religious leaders 
and live that perfect life that he would so infuriate the religious leaders that they would kill him. And so what God said, that's okay, I'm going to let you kill him. I'm just going to let you kill him. And then after you kill him, I'm going to raise him from the dead as proof to everybody that he's my son and allow your murder of my son to be the sacrifice of all mankind. So the events that fulfilled, God doesn't cause them to kill Jesus. He sees what they're going to do and makes the decision to use it. And so then he uses that event and says, I'll raise him from the dead. And we see then how God, we've got a, a great thing here that sometimes it's hard to understand. That is God's providential care in bringing about his will and yet our free will. And we're always asking the question, how can God perfectly know everything and yet we have perfect free will? Well, the thing is that because of God's perfect knowledge, he can always make the right decisions. It's just like you and I, uh, if any one of us could make a million in the stock market right now, if we had perfect knowledge, because we would know exactly what to do with our money. And we, could, we would go out here, you and I never would have to get hit by a car or anything like that if we had perfect foreknowledge, because we'd know when to get in that car and when not to get into it. And so God does not need to tamper with man's will in order to accomplish his will. Like Jesus said in John 2.24, that he needed not that anybody testify to him of man, for he knew what was in the heart of man. Sometimes, before those people even talked, he said, why are you perceiving this, thinking this way in your heart? He knew, he knew what was going on in their mind. So God's perfect knowledge allows him to always make the right decision. And so anybody that fights God, it's like coaching against a coach and he's already been told your plan. He knows you're going to run the quarterback and he knows you're going to pass to that end and here you are trying to beat him. Well, it's impossible to beat him in that situation. He can take a lesser team and beat you. All right, from our standpoint, look at the great thing about being on God's side. Be like playing for this coach that already has the other guy's plan and he tells you he, he already he already knows who's going to pass and who's going to run and and whether the guy's going to pitch a fastball or a curve or anything like that, and we're on God's side. And so, here it is, they crucified the Son of God, it looks like the devil has the upper hand, but God, with perfect knowledge, doesn't tamper with anybody's will. But he gets his will accomplished because of his perfect knowledge, he's omniscient. And so he said, if God knew he was going to do this, we let you kill him. And then God raised him from the dead, but then, now he's going to drive it home. They respected those prophets, and, and they really respected David. And so he's going to, when he brings the testimony of David behind Jesus, in the Jewish mind, he, the only person that he could bring that would carry the same weight would be Moses himself. David was the rival. And they were disappointed in Jesus because he wasn't another David that they thought. Okay, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart will rejoice, my body will live in hope. He says, you will not abandon me to the Hades. You will not allow your Holy One to see the cake. All right. David spoke of an individual who, when he died, his spirit would not remain in Hades, and his body would not see the cake. Okay. He says, brothers, I can tell you confidently that David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. David 
has written something that David didn't fully understand himself and nobody else understood. And he said, for years you people have read it. But he says, look at it very carefully. David said that somebody was going to come and his spirit would not remain in the Hadean world when he was killed and his body would not see corruption. The spirit and the body were going to be united together again. He said, you know it could be speaking of David because he died, there's his tomb, and his spirit is still in the Hadean realm. David's still in the place of the dead. So again, the driving the home, the point to them that, hey, it'd be just like you having read all these material in the, that they had in the Old Testament. And all your life you've pondered over these passages and tried to figure them out. And now all of a sudden with the apostles preaching, lights began to come out all over. Okay, now, come on down and look at verse uh, 36 after it concludes the sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus who be crucified both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said, what shall we do? Now, here's the point here. I honestly believe, personally, that Christianity gets shortchanged in the minds of unbelievers out there. That they so often hear a preacher or a spokesman for the Lord who has not even studied in his word, who gets up there and just talks about personal things and then says, let Jesus come into your heart or something like that. And this person is sitting there trying to evaluate whether or not that is true. And then the best thing he's told is, you know, well, if you wouldn't so mean and the devil didn't have such a hold on you, then you would go ahead and give up. These people were convinced based on evidence. They had every kind of evidence imaginable. In fact, you have to ask yourself, if God wanted to convince these people that Jesus was raised from the dead, what else could he do? He, couldn't, he just couldn't do anymore. You got the eyewitnesses who spent three and a half years with him and who actually were not biased. They were biased against him. Peter denied him three times. A crucified Christ was no Christ at all. They all fled in unbelief. And now here are these cowards who are denied him, standing up there just as bold as all get out, ready to take on the world, uh, talking about, and all the time they're talking, they're talking in languages they've never learned, and a fire standing over their head, quoting all kinds of prophecies that you've read and studied and never understood, and now all of it's open before your eyes. And so they were pricked in their heart by evaluating with their God-given intelligence all the information. Now, the emotions are a part, but first it's the intellect. They started out as unbelievers. And they started out calling them drunkards. And the emotions don't come involved until the evidence has so overwhelmed them. And so it'd be like you having done something that you honestly believe is right. And that's what they did. When they crucified Jesus, they thought they were killing a false prophet. And you've done it. Well, now how are you going to be made sorry? Well, first of all, somebody has to intellectually prove to you that you made a tremendous mistake. Well, then when they intellectually prove to you, what happens? Then the tears come. Then the sorrow comes. Then the emotions flow. And something I think we're going to see as we go through here in this, in this business of conversion, first the intellect and second the emotions. And if the intellect is convinced and sees, then the individual has to deal with that information. Now some will deal with it by being dishonest. But the honest people, the emotions then will come. And so they were pricked in their heart. And so the emotions are a definite part of our conversion. They're part of our experience. 
but they follow being intellectually convinced of material that you can examine with your God-given intelligence, then your emotions flow. Now, to give you an example, I heard this some years back, and I thought it was good, and I used it to Jackson, heard it several times and all, but to show you the importance of, of and this is all the way through here, in conversion or anything else, and I think it's important in our approach to the unbeliever of keeping the intellect first and allowing the emotions to follow, you might receive some information like uh, if you left Luke with a babysitter and you could get a phone call and the babysitter says that Luke is dead. That Luke has just had a very serious accident and he's dead. You break down and cry. You get crushed. A half hour later, that person calls you back and they say, I was playing a joke on you. Luke is alive. Wasn't dead in the first place. And so it never even happened. Your mind operates on what you believe is right, whether or not it's right. If somebody tells you something and you believe on it, your emotions will react to it, even though it may be a falsehood. Those Muslims are as sincere as they can be, but they're operating on false information. So what we see then is that before we turn our emotions loose and embrace something, we need to be intellectually convinced. And these people were intellectually convinced first. This is a message that when we as Christians talk to Muslims and with the Hindu, or with anybody else that is involved in, in, in something of that nature without Jesus, we need to get back and say, I appreciate your sincerity, I appreciate the emotions and all, but is that really staked in some intellectual material that you've examined? That, examined? I think the same thing with the Mormon and Joseph Smith. I say, I appreciate your sincerity, and I appreciate the fact you dedicate several years of your life and your morality and everything like that. But have you intellectually examined Joseph Smith, separate and apart from just your upbringing? Have you intellectually evaluated the information? You see, the unbeliever out there in the world that we're not reaching looks at us as a people that have got our emotions first. And we need to do, I think, when we come and look at this, the information went out first. God literally overwhelmed them with evidence. The Holy Spirit did everything but knock them in the face. As so far as to convince them, and they were over then the emotions flow. And I think we need to do a good job of getting sure our emotions are involved. That yes, that we shed tears thinking about the Lord and His, his sacrifice and all of that nature. But it's because we were first of all intellectually convinced beyond any doubt in our mind, and then the emotion comes afterward. And I think also all the way through our Christian experience that it becomes very important to, to always keep that in mind. First, the intellect has to be convinced, then the emotions follow. If that's true, we're not going to find ourselves out here like Paul said of the Jews who had a zeal for God, but not in keeping with knowledge. The knowledge comes first. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be put to shame, having to write the word of truth. In other words, Timothy, if you don't study, you'll be put to shame in what you teach. Knowledge first, and then the emotions afterwards. And I think that, I know that I've attended services, Jack and I, and Louise, Barbara, we was in a service last night that we enjoyed in many ways. Very sincere people there. And I've been in other services of that nature. But if every service was like that, 
there wouldn't be the kind of growth that we're talking here. Because we had a, a, a thing that was, it was all expression and feeling. But there was very little said that people were backing up with hardcore concrete statements that they could prove. Everybody was saying what they felt. But not uh, there was nobody uh, much digging in and, and, and trying to present and convince me intellectually or some things. In other words, they were saying things with a lot of meaning and they were sincere. And I believe they were saved people. But I wasn't convinced of the things they said because they were not persuading me with evidence. They were just telling me how they felt. Uh, give me the evidence, and if it's true, I'll feel the same way. And that's what happened here. The apostles gave the evidence. Then these people felt like the apostles did. And just like Peter, he went out and wept bitterly when he realized he'd done. Well, now these people are ready to do some reading. So the, the conversion then was a matter of presenting the evidence. You and I have the same prophecies. We've got the eyewitnesses count that we can check, verify one with the other. We have all of the unique features of the book itself. We have the effect, the fruits of the Spirit that ought to flow from our lives and all, that ought to stand as a light in comparison to what everybody else is seeing in the world. God has given us every tool to convince everybody of the truthfulness of the things that we're talking about here. All right, now they said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they were to repent of their sins, be baptized for the rest of their sins. The word baptism is simply a Greek word that means immersion. Baptismo is a Greek word that simply means to be immersed. And later on, we'll come to passages that explain it, that, uh, that, uh, that baptism typified what was happening spiritually, that Paul in Romans and Colossians will speak that, that as we are immersed, we picture his death, burial, and resurrection, and that we picture a person dead and being buried and then rising to walk in newness of life. And so that the event, in other words, again, ask yourself the question, in physical terms, what could God ask you to do to impress a spiritual truth on your mind that would better fit your death, burial, and resurrection than to simply be immersed. That's, that's what he asked. And so repent, and again, now, I think we talked to this somewhat before, where I differ with a lot that I have been in fellowship with in past years is that they put more emphasis on the physical act of baptism than they do on the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus. And that these people were convinced about Jesus and then they repented of their sins, and then there was that physical act. And the remission of sins would be in the blood of Christ, but still, the physical act was there. And again, I'd state, in my personal belief, I believe everybody converted to Jesus ought to be baptized, just like they were there. And, and I would, and, and the same with the Lord's Supper, that uh, I believe everybody converted to the Lord ought to partake of the, the Lord's Supper to commemorate his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, they, the, Promise then, and then notice what they did. We'll end on this for tonight. So go on, and after I give you a chance to comment all on that. What's, uh, uh, let's see. Okay, they devoted, verse 42 and 3. They devoted themselves, and this is what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, to the apostles' teaching. What we're seeing here again, the apostles aren't just one of the Christians. And I don't believe there's anybody today on a par with the apostles. The apostles were like Moses. They were special chosen people. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
and to fellowship. We see they had fellowship with one another. And so we, we see in, I think, three statements there what happens in the Christian experience of a religious nature. The devotion to the apostles' teaching, that's what we're doing right now. We're studying the apostles' teaching. And as we go all, as we study the Bible, we're devoting ourselves. Even our understanding of the Old Testament, the difference between us and the Jew, uh, we're using the, the, the Holy Spirit has used the apostles to interpret interpret those things they couldn't understand. And so it's by the instruction of the apostles, we're fellowshipping. And so they we see that they fellowship together. In fact, they fellowship a whole lot different than Christians do today. It wasn't no Sunday night and Wednesday type thing. It seems the indication is that Christians on a regular basis came together and that they were in one another's homes and that there was strong fellowship there and they were concerned about one another. They were willing, willing to go out and sell possessions and give to one another as they had need and things like that. So there was a, a devotion to the apostles' teaching. Again, we see the intellect, the knowledge. How in the world are we going to know what to do to serve God if he doesn't instruct us? And then the fellowship and then the breaking breaking of bread is mentioned there, and then prayers. Personally, I believe the breaking of bread there is the Lord's Supper for the simple reason that everything in that contest is, is, is religious in nature. In other words, it's the apostles' teaching, it's the fellowship, and it's the prayer. And I know that later on they refer to the Lord's Supper as just simply the breaking of bread, and that was in all the Christian writings, all even outside the Bible, it was that way. But they also had, in addition to that, as part of their, their fellowships and all, something that we read in the New Testament called Love Feast, where Christians came together on a regular basis and broke bread and had their meals together as part of that. And so there was both involved. They, there was a breaking of bread, there was the Lord's Supper they took up, and then, in fact, we come on down here and it says, uh, let's see, uh, in verse 46, they continued to meet together, they broke bread in their homes and ate together. And so... The fellowship involved the partaking of the Lord's Supper, meeting together in one of the homes, eating together. And another thing that's interesting in reading by Lamsa, who is a person from that part of the world who's written a lot on the customs and all of that area, that breaking of bread in that part of the world together was a was something that in their culture was symbolic of friendship. And that's what like when David said that he that has dipped his soft for me, lifted up his heel against me. In other words, you didn't break bread with the enemy. And, and breaking bread together. And then another thing, many of the Jewish meals consisted only of bread. They, they, they would dip their bread, and then they had a dip. So like we would have chips and dip or something, they had bread, and they would all dip in together and, and then eat. But it was a sign of friendship, and they would do it in, in that way. And so you have a very close, in other words, what we have here is not a situation where people never see one another except on Sunday and Wednesday and a very formal type situation, but we have a real close family unit that meets on a regular basis and they get together and they're concerned about one another and they're literally, as we're going to see, on fire for taking that message to the world that they live in. Whatever, see that stuff. I think... Uh, I, I believe you do uh, in, in individuals and, and, and all any place. I think there are, uh, what has happened, I think, what happened here, like these people that were converted, there, there were no people that was converted except people that were 100 convinced that Jesus was a Christ. Because nobody even brought up in a Christian family and like that. They were the first generation 
when you became a Christian, immediately persecution went with it in that Jewish situation. And so you just didn't become a Christian unless you were, you were going to have to leave everything that you had been taught. Your family sometimes was going to denounce you. There were no insincere Christians here at first. You had to be sincere to embrace it. And so they were zealous and everything. And I think what happens is as the years go by, Christianity became popular, encompassed the world. We have people that join churches because this church is prominent in this area. For example, if you're a businessman in Salt Lake City, it would be very advantageous to you to visit the Mormon tabernacles. And if you're a, a Catholic in Rome, and you want to run a successful business, you have a hard time doing it, I think, if you simply were not a Catholic and said you didn't believe the Pope. And in our society, in our cities, we have our prominent churches, and I think we have people that come in because of the prominence of groups. We also have people that mom and daddy went there, and so they just kind of fall into. There's social pressure. Some people go because it's, some people think they ought to go, and they're kind of pressured into going. And I don't know that, uh, you know, I don't know what the percentage, but I know in all the years that I've worked at churches, you generally, it seems to me, you have that whatever percentage would be, maybe 20% or something like that, that really sacrifice and give and work, and, uh, and you can see by their lives that they really believe it, and then you have some that are just there, and some that you actually wonder why they are there, you know, as a result of it. But then again, I think I'm, what you said too, Janet, that uh, I believe if we practice fellowship in the way that it was taught there, that it, uh, in other words, I'm not talking about in the, in the sense like we discussed the Mennonites, who I think some force their own judgment and opinions on others and all, but in the moral sense, these people actually made morality a, a matter of fellowship. And they, they denounced it in the midst, and they made it clear that we will not tolerate adultery and, and, and drunkenness and lying and things like that. And I think that that tended to like attracts like. And that, that kept weeded out also. And I think in not practicing that in the way that he sets forth, uh, we probably weaken the church a lot in the process. Like uh, the writers would say, a little leaven leaven for a whole lot sometimes. My personal opinion is that when when we don't eat together, we miss out on that closeness. I think that brings us together as in, in fellowship, in a closer relationship with one another. Yeah. And we're, I don't know, we're so wise or something like this. Well, I think it's good. Now, what we, I tell you, what we got away from something we started doing, we were, were meeting uh, once a month after services and we just bring a potluck dinner where everybody cooks up some dishes we all get together and we got a place outside it's nice we sometimes we'd have the whole church over here and sometimes it'd be over there you know depending on how many there was and all and we were doing that every month and then also we'd meet sometime on just sunday after services for what we call just a refreshment type meeting you know it'd be after services and we just all have refreshments and all together and the reason that it got that we had so few that would that actually stayed. In other words, that uh, a number of the ones that are members now did not stay, and uh, we just kind of got away from it. I guess for that reason, more than more than any. But I think it's very good. I, you know, I just uh, I think if you're going to grow and all, you need to do those things. And I believe that what I like for it too is it does two things. To me, it allows Christians to have close fellowship. 
But if you have uh, somebody that's not a Christian yet that visited your services, it just provides an ideal setting to get to know that person in a very comfortable situation. Uh, but I think it's uh, good in most of the churches that I've been with. In fact, we had a thing years back when I worked full-time here. We had that uh, once a month, we had the whole church have a fellowship there. 